This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. On today's program, we'll talk with Democracy Now!'s Amy Goodman. She was arrested in 2016 while covering the Dakota Access Pipeline protests. But, she says, it's not about her. I didn't take this arrest warrant personally. It was a message sent to all journalists, do not come to North Dakota, which is exactly why we had to be there. And we're joined by Kenneth Kimmel of the Union of Concerned Scientists. He says that despite nonstop disaster headlines, the media still isn't doing enough to connect the dots between weather and climate change. People are still not really getting that it's affecting them right now. Mm. Not 20 years, not 50 years, right now. They're going to pay for all of this. We're all going to pay for all this. And the media really needs to do a much better job of explaining that. Science, activism, and the media. Up next on Climate One. Should the media be talking more about climate change? Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. As the host and executive producer of Democracy Now!, Amy Goodman has built a career on covering the grassroots activism and general muckraking that can catalyze change. Goodman is not afraid to take on powerful industries when bringing a story to the public, even one that mainstream media won't touch. Ken Kimmel, president of the Union of Concerned Scientists, brings the same tenacity to his work. Under Kimmel, UCS has led the charge in exposing the relationship between oil companies, climate change, and climate denial, and is working to make those issues a priority in Congress. On today's program, Goodman and Kimmel discuss the intersection between science and the media, and the ways that activist journalism can push mainstream news outlets into broadening their coverage of climate change. Here's your host, Greg Dalton. Welcome. To you both. Amy Goodman, let's begin. Tell us the story of the Day of the Dogs when you were Mm. in Standing Rock. So that was September 3rd, 2016. It was at the height of the presidential election in this country, a time when the critical issues of the day should have been raised every day with the presidential candidates. Um, It was about the standoff at Standing Rock, which began April 1st, 2016. Um, uh, The Oh, the unofficial historian of the Standing Rock Sioux tribe, uh, LaDonna Bravebull Allard, opened her property along the Cannonball River in North Dakota to the resistance, the resistance to the $3.8 billion Dakota Access Pipeline. Native Americans called it the Black Snake, that would snake its way taking fracked oil from the back and oil fields of North Dakota through South Dakota, Iowa, Illinois, then hook up with a pipeline to the Gulf of Mexico. The Standing Rock Sioux were deeply concerned about the fact the pipeline would go under the Missouri River, the longest river in North America, and imperil the water supply of 17 million people downstream. And they said no. They actually weren't alone in saying no. Uh, The people of Bismarck, the capital, they said no, and their views were respected. The people of Mandan, where the courthouse and the jail that's jailed so many hundreds of Native Americans over their protests, they said no, and their views were respected. 
But the Native Americans, who just wanted to be treated like any North Dakotan, their views were not respected. And so they began to protest. They didn't call themselves protesters. They called themselves water protectors. Soon, scores of people came. Then hundreds of people came. Then thousands of people came to North Dakota um, from Latin America, the United States, the First Nations, from Canada. It was the largest unification of Native American tribes that we have seen in this country in decades. It was astounding. Many Almost of them no veterans. Yep. Oh, veterans also joined. Um, Almost no coverage. So that was April 1st, May, June, July. The presidential election is going along, the, pr the primaries and uh, then the general election. We go Labor Day weekend. We went to cover the protests, and they were amazing. I mean, you'd have first a water ceremony in the middle of a road and glasses of water. The native elders would hold it. And as they would walk down these rural back roads, they would be met by a fully militarized sheriff's department. I mean, they had MRAPs, they had tanks, they had automatic weapons. And these uh, Native Americans had a glass of water. And they would say, this is for you as well as for us. For your children, we're doing this as well as our children. We know those scenes of militarized police from Ferguson, right? When uh, Michael Brown was killed by a white police officer in 2014 and left to, his body left to bake in the hot August sun for hours, the whole community rose up and they were met by the same kind of militarized series of police departments from throughout St. Louis. This is recycling in America today. You take the weapons from Afghanistan and Iraq and you give them to the police departments of the United States. And there are a number of high-level police officials who are also deeply concerned about this. Um, so this is what the Native Americans faced, but they kept on protesting. And on that weekend, Labor Day weekend, they didn't expect that the Dakota Access Pipeline is owned by energy transfer partners, that they would be excavating because it was a holiday weekend. And a judge was going to be ruling the following week. And so they went, a group of people went to their, what they called their sacred burial ground to bury, to plant tribal flags. And when they got there, they saw the bulldozers excavating at full tilt. And they were furious. The judge had asked for a map to prove that these were their sacred grounds. They'd made the map, given it to the judge. The judge gave it to energy transfer partners. You know, the judges give it to the other side. And the Native Americans felt they had leapfrogged over the company, the areas where they were, and actually used the map to target this area to excavate so that the facts on the ground would change before the judge's decision. It would be a moot point. So they were furious. They went up on the property, older women, girls, boys, teenagers, men, people with horses, and they stood in front of the bulldozers. It was terrifying. These are massive machines that churn the earth. This time, though, the bulldozers pulled back. One, two, three, four, five, six of them moving back, the people moving forward, the people at the resistance camps. Now there were many resistance camps were hearing about what was happening. They were coming forward, and the bulldozers were coming back until the Dakota Access Pipeline guards unleashed dogs on the Native Americans. <laughs> dogs. We were filming this whole thing. Dogs. We were filming people with their arms bitten. They were bloodied. They were maced, they were beaten, but ultimately the company pulled back that day. I mean, the Native Americans had prevailed at a painfully high price. 
But that day, um, the uh, bulldozers pulled back. We immediately posted this video online that night. There were 14 million views online within 24, 48 hours. That shows, gives the lie to the corporate executives who run the networks who say, I mean, climate change, people are just not interested. Clearly, people are interested. The next week, we went back to New York. On Thursday night, uh, the governor called out the National Guard. It didn't look good for the tribe. The next day, the judge would be ruling on Friday. I didn't know this, but um, the authorities also quietly issued an arrest warrant for me. So on Friday, the judge ruled total routing of the tribe. It wasn't a good decision for the tribe. Um, it was about five o'clock in the afternoon. But President Obama had been in Asia that week. And um, he was in Laos, this historic trip he made, first sitting president to go there. And he held a democracy forum um, for young people from all over Asia to learn about democracy. And one of the last questions, a young woman from Malaysia raised her hand. She said, um, President Obama, what about the Dakota Access Pipeline? She dared to ask a question no American journalist had had publicly of the president. Dakota Access Pipeline, please. And he actually eloquently addressed the issue of oppression of Native Americans. And then didn't have to, but because he could have ended this discussion, but did say, ask to Dapple, the Dakota Access Pipeline, I have to get back to my team. So he came back to the United States and um, reportedly saw the video of the dogs. We filmed a dog with its nose and mouth dripping with blood. We interviewed Winona LaDuke, right, who is with the um, White Earth Reservation in northern Minnesota, who had pitched her teepee at the Red Warrior Camp. And she said to the governor, you are not George Wallace. This is not 1965, Alabama. We are through. President Obama reportedly saw the video of the dogs. It was not lost on the first African-American president, the significance of this. So the judge rules against the tribe, Justice Department against the tribe. But not 15 minutes later, an unprecedented three-agency letter from Justice, Interior Department, and the Army Corps of Engineers said, we're going to hold off. We're going to slow down. We're going to see if there was a proper environmental impact statement, if the Native Americans were consulted properly. So, I mean, the Native Americans suffering from whiplash, first the worst decision, then, oh, my gosh, this could mean we are prevailing. We, by the way, that night were in Canada. Uh, we had done the broadcast on Friday morning. Didn't know about the court, the arrest warrant. Next day, I was at University of Toronto speaking along with Matt Taibbi of Rolling Stone and others. And I get a text on my phone. It says, you're under arrest. I'm in Canada. I have to go over the border if I'm going to get home. So I just looked up and I basically said, um, could someone call me a cab? And I raced to the airport, got home. But I really felt it was critical then. I didn't take this arrest warrant personally. It was a message sent to all journalists, do not come to North Dakota, which is exactly why we had to be there. And I wanted to ensure that young journalists would not be afraid to go to cover this historic gathering around the fate of the planet, around sustaining our planet. And it was critical for young journalists not to fear that they would be arrested if they went to cover this. So we went back, flew into Bismarck, um, and as we landed, we were just calling the bluff of the authorities. And as we landed, they announced, the prosecutors announced they were quashing the arrest warrant and dropping the charges, but I would be charged with more serious charges, riot. What, like I'm a one-woman riot? And I said to my lawyer, 
what does this mean? Then they said in three days you'll be arraigned at 1.30 on the following Monday, which gave us two and a half more days to cover the protests. We broadcast that next Monday morning. Democracy Now!, the show must go on, and we were in Bismarck. So we went to Mandan in front of the courthouse and the jail. That was our backdrop where I'd have to turn myself in. The courthouse and the jail and the Ten Commandments in between. And we interviewed the chairman at the time of the Standing Rock Sioux, Dave Archambault. I said, have you ever been arrested? He said, yes. Um, I said, what happened to you? Misdemeanor for civil disobedience, uh, for protesting the pipeline. So I said, what happened? He said, I was strip searched. I was put in an orange jumpsuit and I was jailed. I mean, 45th pres uh, chairman of the tribe. That's like President Trump is the 45th president of the United States. I asked the pediatrician on the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, Dr. Sarah Jumping Eagle. Have you ever been arrested? She was one of the first because she cared about the health of the kids. She was strip searched. She was put in an orange jumpsuit and she was jailed. I mean, the humiliation, how much can a people take? And then after the show, it was coming nearer to 1.30, and I got word from North Dakota Public Radio that the judge in the case, usually it's a rubber stamp to sign off on the charges so that I would be arraigned, had refused to sign off on the charges. And also... Um, a number of Native Americans who were going to court that day had their felonies and their misdemeanors dropped. And that just goes to show when the media shines the light in the right direction. I mean, everyone, I mean, New York Times covering it, Time Magazine, I mean, New York Times, Los Angeles Times, BBC homepage it was on. Vogue magazine was covering this. You've made and it, it yeah. just shows <laughs> what true reality TV, the kind that I would support, what a difference it can make. And that's what we need when it comes to environmental reporting. What is happening on the ground? Ken Kimmel, does, and the, the Dakota Access Pipeline was, was rejected. Now it's back on again. Does stopping one piece of metal, does stopping one pipeline change the system? Say that that gets... Well, not in of itself. And, and first of all, I do, I do want to second Amy's larger point that a lot of these stories don't get told by the mainstream media. And congratulations to you for really making this as big an issue as it was. I think that was a huge public service. And all the people who uh, stood up in that cold winter and, and, and froze to, uh, opposing that pi pipeline have done a great service. So clearly no one would say that stopping that one pipeline is going to solve the problem of climate change. But I wouldn't look at that in isolation. Um, Donald Trump uh, and the situation we find ourselves in has paradoxically unleashed a lot of activism at all different levels. And you saw it in the March for Science, um, 75,000 people in Washington, hundreds of thousands of people uh, across the world. You saw it in the Climate March. Um, you see it in shareholder activism, which is really starting to put some pressure now where it should be directed, which is the big oil companies. Um, and most recently, the five communities in California that have now filed lawsuits in state court against the big majors. So I look at all of those activities um, as part of an aggregate. And each one of them is not enough to really change the, the needle. Um, but collectively, perhaps they will. And they're coming at just the right time because we have a federal government that has gone AWOL on the central challenge of our times, which is climate change. And so people from all different walks of life uh, in all different ways need to step up to the plate and exert pressure to make that change. And so I do think that protests like Standing Rock are hugely important. We need more of them. Um, the fossil fuel industry is very well aware of how difficult um, it is in this environment to cite infrastructure and build it because people are standing 
up, but it's a necessary but not sufficient condition. We need to do a lot of other things as well to really make a change. But are, are fossil fuels ascendant now? I mean, they're, they're very popular in, and certainly in Washington, D.C., you know, pushing back the war on coal, et cetera. You know, is that going to make a difference or are markets moving in a different direction, Ken Kimmel? Well, uh, you know, we have uh, coined the Trump administration as government of by and for the fossil fuel industry. So obviously in that limited sense, they're ascendant. Um, but the problem they face is technology is moving very, very rapidly away from fossil fuels. And we all know this. Um, the miraculous drop in costs in solar energy, the miraculous drop in cost of wind energy, energy storage, electric vehicles. So a lot of people... Um, although you can't see it just yet, uh, just over the horizon um, is a massive disruption of the fossil fuel industry. The Trump administration is clearly trying to swim against that tide. Uh, they have an idea which is completely false, that they can bring back uh, jobs in coal mines if they only just get rid of environmental regulations, which is absolutely not true. So they're going to take a stab at it. They also announced uh, a scheme, which I don't think they'll get through, to subsidize coal plants and nuclear energy plants to sort of fight against uh, this, this uh, shift towards renewables. I don't think any of that will be successful. Um, so I think we're going to win this fight. But, uh, you know, four to eight years of the Trump administration could slow down the progress, um, which is why all of this activism is so important. But the other key thing is states like California, New York uh, and, and Illinois, big states with ambition, picking up some of the slack that, that we're left with due to the absence of federal leadership. Amy Goodman, the Washington Post did a story uh, earlier this year that said that Arby's employs more people than the coal industry in the United States. <laughs> One company, 80,000 people. There's about 76,000 people who work in coal mining in the United States. That's just ahead of bowling alleys and nail salons. Um, so why does the coal industry, <laughs> you know, important jobs for those people, often, you know, immigrants. But the point is that the coal industry seems to have an outsized capture on our public discourse. Why are we so captivated with coal miners and that industry gets a disproportionate amount of coverage in the political debate? I mean, what we're seeing in Washington is the rise of the oligarchy. Um, you have, um, well, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, who's the former head of the largest oil corporation in the world, ExxonMobil. You have the Secretary of Energy is the former governor of Texas, Rick Perry. Um, he ran for president twice, was bankrolled to the tune of $6 million by Kelsey Warren, the CEO of Energy Transfer Partners, which owns the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, Scott Pruitt, the former Oklahoma attorney general, sued the uh, EPA 14 times, has tried to eviscerate it from the outside. Now, as head of the EPA, is trying to do that on the inside. And perhaps if the <clears throat> government were AWOL, we would be in better shape. They are really full speed ahead trying to deregulate this country, and they use coal as a symbol. Now, the people in coal country need jobs. There is no question about that, and they need clean, healthy jobs, and I think really we are all in this together, um, and <clears throat> I wanted to go to what is happening now. I mean, here we are in San Francisco, you've got the wildfires uh, just north of us. Um, you've, before that, you've got the hurricanes. And as Hurricane Harvey had just hit Houston, 
flooding it, drowning Houston. And right as Hurricane Irma was hurtling toward the United States, making landfall in the Caribbean and coming to the United States, President Trump went on September 6th to Mandan, North Dakota, um, right near the jail where so many hundreds of Native Americans had been imprisoned, deeply concerned about the environment. Um, Right down the road, he stood in front of um, an oil refinery. And as these hurricanes were slamming his country, he boasted about pulling the United States out of the Paris Climate Accord and giving the green light to the Keystone XL pipeline, which was killed years ago because of massive protest, and the Dakota Access Pipeline. This was his answer. And that's the position of the Trump administration. And they are moving fast. But it really is up to the media. I'm not talking about Fox when I talk about the lack of climate change coverage. I'm talking about MSNBC and CNN in addition. I mean, you see those words, severe climate, um, severe weather, extreme weather, flashing across the TV screens constantly. 24-hour coverage, except when it comes to Puerto Rico. They don't cover Puerto Rico as much. But 24-hour coverage when it comes to Florida, when it comes to um, Texas. And by the way, they should. Um, They should just cover Puerto Rico more and, of course, what's happening here in California. Um, But where is the discussion? The meteorologists talking about climate change, global warming, climate chaos, another two words that should be flashing because that gives us the sense that we can do something about this. It is absolutely critical that this coverage be there. Ken Kimmel, tell us what is the connection? Because a lot of scientists are wary to connect a single uh, weather event to climate change. So tell us the link between climate and Harvey and Irma and even the fire. Sure. Um, It's pretty well established and there's a high degree of consensus in the scientific community that storms like uh, Harvey and Maria and Irma, Irma are all made much more likely by climate change. So the probabilities of those storms happening has, is caused by, is, is a climate change reality. And the severity of those storms is uh, heightened by climate change. Similarly, the fires that, we're ex- that you're experiencing here, the fingerprints of climate change are on those fires as well. So many trees died off during the droughts which are linked to climate change and this record dry temperature and heat dries them out further and makes them very, very susceptible to fires. Um, and, and I want to agree with Amy here. I think just as the media did a terrible job during the presidential campaign covering climate change, and we were as frustrated as anyone about the lack of questions, we actually sent questions to the moderators um, to try to get them to ask a darn question about climate change. They never did. Um, We're also frustrated, though, that we see all these stories, especially on TV. The print media is a little bit better. Mm -hmm. All these stories about climate, uh, sorry, about all these severe weather events and uh, the words climate change are hardly mentioned. Meanwhile, there are all these uh, very capable, well-educated scientists who are ready to go on on the record and explain the connections. The National Academy of Sciences came out with a study in 2016 indicating that the science uh, of attribution is solid and dependable and reliable. Um, So where is the media um, in covering this? And I think they really have an obligation to tell people two things. One, climate change has fingerprints on these events. And two, 
we are all paying for this right now in the billions and billions of dollars that it's going to cost to deal with all these disasters. And people need to understand that because although uh, the consensus is growing, the number of people who accept the science, people are still not really getting that it's affecting them right now. Mm. Not 20 years, not 50 years, right now. And it's affecting them uh, if they're victims of these events, but even if they're not, they're gonna pay for all of this. We're all gonna pay for all this. And the media really needs to do a much better job of explaining that. This is Climate One. We're talking about activist journalism, science, and the media with Amy Goodman of Democracy Now! and Ken Kimmel of the Union of Concerned Scientists. Here's Greg Dalton. We're going to go to our lightning round. I'm going to ask each of our guests uh, mention a word, and they're going to mention the first thing that comes into their mind, unfiltered, regardless of uh, thinking how anyone might react. Uh, so, Amy Goodman, what's the first thing that comes to mind when I say Barack Obama? A person that the current president is spending his presidency trying to completely negate. Ken Kimmel, President Trump's science advisor. AWOL, zero. There isn't one. He has not. And if there were one, he probably wouldn't listen to him, just as he's not listening to many of his advisors on a whole range of issues. Uh, Ken Kimmel, Scott Pruitt. <sighs> In the history of the Republic, maybe the worst uh, cabinet, uh, uh, maybe the worst person in cabinet ever. There may be a couple of others that I'm not thinking of, but beyond uh, any that we've seen before. Uh, Amy Goodman, Nigeria. Well, um, Jeremy Scahill, a great journalist, and I went to Nigeria, and we covered Chevron, um, based right here in California, and uh, what they were doing in the Niger Delta. And we uh, won an honor at the Overseas Press Club for this documentary, and Tom Brokaw was there. Um, he was the MC of the event. And, um, you know, when we got the honor for the documentary, uh, the documentary was called Drilling and Killing, Chevron and Nigeria's Oil Dictatorship. Uh, he didn't quite say, uh, you know, the names of what, he didn't name Chevron. And I felt it was very important to talk about, I mean, I think that's what makes the difference is to talk about the specific companies involved, talk about the whole industry. And ultimately what it means is that together we figure out uh, an alternative way that leads to a sustainable planet. Uh, last one, association for Ken Kimmel. Uh, preface this by saying, uh, Union of Concerned Scientists also works on food and agriculture. Fruit Loops. <laughs> <laughs> Not the healthiest food to give our kids. Even though they're trying to make them more natural. True or false, Amy Goodman, the war on drugs is a failure. True. Uh, also, Amy Goodman, attacking supply of bad substances, drugs or oil or coal, doesn't reduce demand. A lot of advocacy is aimed at attacking supply. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about of drugs. It, drugs, oil, anything. You know, if you want to solve something bad, do you attack supply or do you go after demand? Both. Uh, Ken Kimmel, true or false, you believe in climate change. <laughs> Trick question. I accept the solid science of climate change. I don't believe in it. I accept it. It's not a belief. Uh, Amy Goodman, true or false, persuading people to think the way you do often works. <laughs> um, 
I absolutely think that's true. I just had a conversation with a fierce climate denier who ran a series of radio stations around the country. And you flipped them? I met him on the plane. That's really <laughs> wonderful when you're stuck together for six hours. <laughs> wonderful for you or wonderful know, for him? I don't know I'm if trying. it was one, But we had a really interesting discussion because he homeschooled his daughters. Hmm. And I said, do you actually tell them that um, human beings have nothing to do with climate change? And I think that's where we start. Because I said... People who have these two different sets of views, I actually don't think they are completely divided. I said, if you completely deny the science and you're teaching your children, and, and he said, well, I wouldn't say totally. I said, well, I think the difference is really you agree with the science, but you're concerned about what we're going to do about it. And that goes to the issue of solutions. Once we tease these apart, then... I think we can find much more agreement and people won't be so afraid. All right, that's the end of our lightning round. Let's give them a <laughs> round of applause for getting through that. <clears throat> I want to roll a piece of tape. We talked with uh, Joan Blades, who's the founder of MoveOn.org, very progressive political organization. And she talks about reaching across the aisle and, and something Amy was just talking about, uh, relationships and information. So let's listen to Joan Blades. Yeah. What we've seen modeled in the media and with leadership too often is this very disrespectful way of engaging with each other. I read my conservative friends' uh, literature they send me, and I go, oh, I see why they don't think climate change is such a big deal. If I was reading this on a regular basis, I would too. And I have conservative friends that you know, care more because they care about me. So that relationship piece is just essential. I have a great deal of faith that when we discover, you know, these people with very different ideas are actually kind, caring, intelligent. And on both sides, we have some misimpressions there. Joan Blades, founder of, uh, co-founder of MoveOn.org and Living Room Conversations, which brings together people across the political divide, like Tea Party, uh, with, with, with very liberal people. So Amy Goodman, I'm going to ask you about your show. Does your show try to bring people together? Because so, a lot of people think your show is, is divisive and villainizing and is not reaching for that, that same person on the plane talking with someone who disagrees. Um. No, I think, you know, Democracy Now! started 21 years ago on nine stations, community radio stations. And um, now we're on over 1,400 public television and radio stations around the country and around the world. And the reason for that is that people are hungry for authentic voices. And I think this is true across the political spectrum. Um, I think in the corporate media, you have this almost false debate between people who often um, don't disagree. I mean, I think there are two issues that are absolutely critical that we have to watch out for when it comes to the corporate media. One is climate change. They just will not um, raise this issue in any serious way. And I'm not talking about the occasional documentary. I'm talking about the daily discourse that sets the agenda. And the other is war, which, to say the least, destroys the environment. I mean, the issue of war is so serious and is 
actually imminent now with the whole conflict increasing in North Korea. And again, I wanted to quote someone, not on Fox, but when the U.S. bombed the Syrian airfield months ago, I happened to have just come home that night, turned on MSNBC, and there was Brian Williams, the uh, former NBC anchor who's now at MSNBC, who said, we see these beautiful pictures at night from the decks of these two U.S. Navy vessels in the Eastern Mediterranean. I am tempted to quote the late, the great Leonard Cohen. I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons, and they are beautiful pictures of fearsome armaments making what is for them a brief flight over to the airfield. That is absolutely shocking. I think said the word beautiful three times in 30 seconds. That's Brian Williams, former anchor of NBC, formerly owned by General Electric. And this is where we have to challenge the media because in times of war being imminent, the media tends to circle the wagons around the White House. And even now, when Donald Trump is hitting the media so hard that they actually have found a backbone, they are fighting back because they're personally being named the failing New York Times, you know, fake news CNN, all of that. And they're rightly fighting back. When it comes to this issue, they do this reflexive thing, the establishment really shoring up the establishment. And that has to be challenged. But outside of this kind of uh, very elite minority, and I'm not talking about people of color that you see on the networks in Washington and in New York, there is the vast majority. There are the people who care about war and peace, and I think they're across the political spectrum. People who care about growing inequality in the world, racial, economic, social justice, LGBTQ rights. People who care about climate change, the fate of the planet. Republican, Democrat, Green, Independent. They are not a fringe minority, not even a silent majority, but the silenced majority, silenced by the corporate media, which is why we have to take the media back. Ken Kimmel, what are you doing at Union of Concerned Scientists to reach out to Republicans, uh, to reach across this political divide? Well, a a lot of things, actually, and some of them are quite encouraging. I mean, one observation I want to make is, although the issue of climate change is horribly polarized in Washington, D.C., it is not as polarized at the state level. So you see Republican governors signing ambitious energy legislation, state legislatures uh, using all the tools in their toolbox so their states can become clean energy leaders. Um, Even the state of Texas under Rick Perry invested $7 billion to create an enormous onshore wind energy industry in Texas. So... um, this issue is, is less polarized at that level, but, but here's uh, what we're trying to focus on. Um, we have had success um, in communities that we go into uh, uh, with independents and Republicans, and what seems to work for us is to make uh, climate impacts uh, much more connected to the things they are seeing in their daily life um, and much more here and now as opposed to far away. So, for example, we put out a report this summer called Rising Seas, which wasn't about the big storm events, but the slow and steady inundation that comes from, mm. from tides. And anyone who wants to can plug in their zip code, and they can see 
what will happen to their neighborhood, uh, to their community in the next 20 years, in the next 40 years, under various different scenarios. And it's a way of personalizing that impact. The report does not lecture people on, on exactly what needs to get done. It's just trying to get information out. Um, and those types of things actually work across the board. We also focus on connecting for conservatives to institutions and icons that they care about. So we put out a report on how many of our military bases are vulnerable to sea level rise and how many of our historic monuments and places that people consider iconic for this country are at risk. So there are ways of talking about this. And if I were to um, summarize one tangible thing that's come of this, we do now have in Washington a 60-member bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus, 30 Republicans, 30 Democrats, and very recently that caucus flexed its muscle and got an amendment to a defense spending bill declaring climate change to be a national security threat. Hmm. This was something that Paul Ryan and his leadership wanted stripped out, and about 30 Republicans joined all the Democrats in saying, no, we want to make this statement. I here, I understand that's a symbolic vote, but I think we can build on that. And, and I think the key is this localized communication that's about uh, the here and now and the things that people are actually experiencing as opposed to, you know, w the way we might have done climate communications 20 years ago, which, you know, did feature polar bears and, and those types of things, which are really important, too, but they don't really connect sufficiently to people's lives to be powerful. You know, I was just thinking we were in Houston uh, uh, in the aftermath of the hurricane. And the editor of the Houston Chronicle um, wrote a piece and talked about how, you know, Houston is known for some of its, um, you know, world-class medical facilities that they are so proud of. And he said, no politician would question the science, would question the medicine that we're engaging in here. Mm. Uh, they just tout it. And he said, why do they take such a different approach when it comes to climate change, where all of our lives are now imperiled? Why aren't we just taking the same kind of sophisticated approach, respect for science? And you can have debates within science, but on the issue of climate change, you know, it's why Democracy Now!, democracynow.org goes to every UN climate summit from Copenhagen to Cancun, from Doha to Durban, uh, Paris, Peru, um, Poland. Now we're going to Bonn in a week or two. You could make a rap song out of that yeah. somehow. <laughs> I think, you know, that's nice, right? <laughs> um, we go there and cover these summits. You might say, why waste the fuel? What gets accomplished? But it's the thousands of people who come from the frontline communities all over the planet who don't necessarily get in, and sometimes they get arrested trying to get into these climate summits um, because they are facing what a 15-year-old boy from the Maldives looked into our camera and said, you are drowning my country. The people of sub-Saharan Africa say, you are cooking our continent. I mean, there are plenty of debates in the rest of the world around what to do about climate change. But the rest of the world is so much more advanced uh, when it comes to understanding that the science is settled. What isn't settled is what we can do about it. This is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. You can listen to all of our programs and subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org. We're talking about media coverage of climate change. 
Craig Dalton's guests today are Ken Kimmel of the Union of Concerned Scientists and Amy Goodman of Democracy Now! Let's go to our audience questions. This is Carol Benedetto. Thank you so much. Um, in the context of what can we do um, in terms of the 2018 upcoming elections around the country, what can we do to get more localized information out so that people in, say, red states not here in California are voting in their interests and not you know, for this, uh, um, things that they learn in misinformation campaigns that we saw happen in the presidential election. I mean, that's very important. Also, just decentralized media, because, you know, information begins where people live, and it's not just uh, um, stories in other places. Uh, People get engaged when they're learning about what's happening at home. Um, Also, one other thing is, uh, in terms of what people can do, it's run for office. Um, We can change the complexion of politics in America. Um, And that will go to all sorts of things. It will put pressure on the issue of campaign finance reform because most people are not that well off able to run for office. It's utterly painful that what we see today is uh, you have to be either personally wealthy or be endorsed by extremely wealthy corporations. And that all has to be changed. We have to bring politics back down to people in their communities. And we know that at the local level with school boards and city councils. And um, and we have to see running for national office in that same way. But as for uh, how you ensure decentralized media, number one, There is a media democracy movement in this country that's very important. We are seeing a level of consolidation of media that is threatening democracy. Sinclair taking over so much of the broadcast outlets right now, um, forbidding certain discussions from taking place. This is extremely serious. Um, I also think people have to challenge the media. You know, they respond to pressure and to social media, tweeting, emailing, calling, texting, um, demanding issues like climate change be covered because it's not just the politicians that are brought to us by the fossil fuel industry. Every six or seven minutes, I don't know if it has to do with why the networks don't bring us climate change coverage, you know, brought to you by the American Petroleum Institute, you see, or brought to you by um, a weapons manufacturer. Now, the network anchors, I think, would very um, clearly say, I don't get a call from them telling them, telling me not to raise these issues. And I think that's true. It's not really the way censorship works in America that you get an actual call. Um, but prove those who are deeply concerned about the connection. You're sponsored by the fossil fuel industry, so you're not raising climate change. Prove them wrong, I say to the anchors. Um, raise the issue. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Uh, first, thank you, Amy. You're on the radio every weekday morning at 9 o'clock in our house. Uh, regarding politics, in every country in the world uh, where there is an exit poll of an election. If the exit poll and the election differ, the election is considered highly questionable, as was the case in Kenya recently. In this country, we decide that the exit poll is wrong. Are either one of your organizations looking into the corruption of our system, which I know personally go back to 2004, when Bush came up when you pushed Kerry in Athens, Ohio? Thank you. So election integrity, Amy Goodman. 
you know, I think it's very important that um, that the whole voting system in this country be looked at. But I think the most important issue is voter suppression right now, as uh, President Trump has impaneled the so-called Voter Integrity Commission, which is very clearly intended to um, actually whittle down the number of people who can vote, particularly in minority communities, particularly African-Americans, particularly Latinos, uh, disempower uh, people. Uh, we have to look at what empowers people. And this is not just an issue that Republicans have been involved with. Democrats, too, do not make this the one of the critical issues that we deal with, is making it easier to vote. In other countries, they do everything they can to um, remove obstacles, make it a holiday, make it a weekend, uh, have early voting. Here, it is the most difficult, and it makes it extremely difficult, um, not only for working people to vote, but then when they cut down the number of voting stations and communities of color, these are very serious issues. Um, And those are the kind of issues that I think we have to really focus on right now. Next question for Amy Goodman. Hi, and uh, wonderful program. I'm a, a scientist. Actually, I work in energy, health, and environment. Ken brought up the uh, Climate Solutions Caucus, and I'm involved with the Citizens Climate Lobby because I want to learn more about political solutions. I guess the question is, uh, how much hope is there that the caucus will expand and actually be able to do something more than just the, the gesture that they've been able to do, which is important. And also, uh, you know, is the media covering this? I mean, this is, I, to me, this is a very important issue that there is this caucus and it's building up and that there is some will in Congress. But Thank this you. is being covered. Ken Kimmel, the bipartisan, they call it the Noah's Ark Committee. Yeah, it's the Noah's Ark Committee because in order for a Democrat to join, he or she has to find a Republican to join, which is a great way to set it up. Um, I I think, you know, it's expanded from 40 to 60 this year alone. Um, So it's got some traction. Um, I I think it it does have uh, a lot of promise. I mean, one thing that isn't maybe well known, a a lot of Republicans in Congress, when you talk to them privately, they they get the science of climate change. They're not they're not climate deniers. Um, The the big problem is um, they're worried about the Koch brothers or others financing primary opponents. That, that's the big thing. Um, and uh, what they really need to be able to do, uh, just as a single prisoner who's trying to break out of jail is going to get shot by the sentry guard, th- they need a lot of them to get out of jail, and they need to get out collectively. And um, we, we are not an or- we're a 501c3 organization, so we don't do electoral politics. But um, I, I think it is important that we give support to those Republicans who are trying to do the right thing. Um, some of them are here in California, uh, some, some are elsewhere. Um, and, you know, you, you're in, involved with a citizen's climate lobby, so you're aware of the possibility of a carbon tax and dividend proposal, which is, is one way to, uh, it's, it's not a silver bullet on its own, but it's an idea that has bipartisan appeal that can be, uh, worked on. So I think this, I think this is going to grow. I think it's partly growing as a reaction to Trump's extremism. And it's also partly growing because people in those districts armed with information about climate change are demanding 
that their representatives, whether they're Republicans or not, have something to say about climate change and not sticking their heads in the sand. So I think it has a, a good future. And I do think uh, the media has done uh, a, a pretty bad job in covering this um, because it doesn't really fit into the you know hand-to-hand combat story that actually members of Congress are getting together and actually trying to cooperate on certain things. So it hasn't been well covered. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. I just want to acknowledge the Ohlone people, the indigenous people first here in San Francisco before I start. My name is Myron Dewey. I'm with Digital Smoke Signals, and we were documenting up there at Standing Rock alongside Amy. What we've seen was a repeat of history with indigenous people. This is happening all throughout the country. We've been in constant defense from the last 500 years, protecting our sacred sites, protecting our water, our traditional harvesting areas. What I don't see is an indigenous presence in here because throughout the country we know where these areas are as, as such as Standing Rock. My tribe is right over here where we've had to fight them putting nuclear bombs underground and next, next to a fault line. You know, So what are the solutions to get out for indigenous media to share our own story? Uh, Myron, yeah, it's very important what you're saying and how many hundreds of Native Americans were arrested and also um, shoring up Native media, as you said. I mean, you were there, you were trying to show what was happening with drones and filming. And um, that's why journalists, I feel are so critical in the struggle, and what you were trying to do was so critical in the struggle. Um, and uh, Native media all over the country um, should be shored up because it's, the, uh, it's people speaking for themselves that is the power, the original power. It's shaping your own narrative. I'd like to end by asking each of you, starting with Amy Goodman, what gives you hope? That people don't give up hope. That, I mean, here we are in San Francisco, and you've got the wildfire. Someone came up to me last night and said, you know, a meme is going around, um, love is thicker than smoke. It's people helping each other. And we have to remember, we are all one community, not divided by political labels, um, and we have to help each other. And that goes to all of these global issues. Ken Kimmel. Um, I think what gives me hope is that there has been an enormous and effective uh, resistance forming to what's happening in Washington. Um, It is a coalition of a very wide group of people. I call them sort of the fact-based community, the people who do believe that evidence and science uh, needs to play a central role. And um, the way that people um, have exercise that power, uh, the the town halls, the citizen activism, the pressure that's been brewing um, has been incredibly powerful. And I think in the end, uh, that building of that movement will survive uh, the current administration and will be a force for progressive change. You've been listening to Climate One, hosted by Greg Dalton. Greg's guests were Amy Goodman, host and executive producer of Democracy Now!, and Ken Kimmel, president of the Union of Concerned Scientists. Podcasts of this and other Climate One shows are available wherever you podcast and on our website, climateone.org. Please leave a comment. We'd love to know what you think about our conversations on energy, food, water, technology, and more. Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel is our producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich are the editors. 
I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. You can discover additional podcasts, videos, speaker information, and more at climateone.org. Join us next time for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.